And uh, to transition a bit into where we are today and what we'll be looking at uh, as we get ready to read the scripture together, we are in Exodus, as you all who have been coming know, and specifically we are just starting our journey into looking at the Ten Commandments, or as Pastor Chris shared with us last word last week, the words, they're actually not ever or rarely called the Ten Commandments in the scriptures, but the words that God has given to his people. And the context of these words comes uh, most clearly to us in the opening statement of the Ten Commandments where God says, I am the Lord your God who has delivered you out of the land of slavery, out of Egypt. And so the immediate context of these words, these commandments, or as Pastor Joe called them, the Ten Friends, is that they are set in the context of this great deliverance that has happened for God and God's people, bringing them out of bondage into bonding. As Pastor Chris has talked about, the encounter between God and, and God's people at the base of Mount Sinai was a wedding of sorts, of God committing himself, of, of binding himself to this one people out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. And God has said in Exodus chapter 19, just the chapter before, that you will be to me, speaking to his people, you will be to me my treasured possession, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. So God, out of all the nations of the earth, has chosen this one people to be God's own. And so we view and approach the Ten Commandments in that light, in that spirit, that these commandments or these words are setting forth a pattern for their life together, are putting a frame around what the shape of their relationship will look like. What will it look like to be God's people? What will it look like to be the bride of God himself. So with that, we will read the scripture together. Ah, lovely. <laughs> I'll do the L part, you guys do the C part. The ten words, or ten commandments, are the laws that God gave to the people of Israel through Moses after leaving, leading them out of slavery in Egypt. These commandments reveal the Lord's pattern for life. And they are also typically divided into, oh, guide for living as God intended. The first four words of the law shape our life with God, the vertical part of our life with God, how we relate to God. The last six words shape our life with each other, how we relate to each other as parent to child, person to person, husband to wife, wife to husband, neighbor to neighbor. This morning, we will remember and declare these commandments. So what are the Ten Commandments? Congregation, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. What is the third commandment? 
You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And what does this commandment mean? Jesus said, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And so, we will use the holy name of God with reverence, praising him in everything we do and say. The first part of the law is this great commandment, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our strength. suspense. <laughs> and the third commandment is, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So, before I became a hospital chaplain, before I became an ordained minister, before I became a seminary student, before I became a mom staying at home, raising my kids, before all of that, my first master's degree was in marriage and family therapy. Before that, my bachelor's degree was in psychology. So you could say that psychology and all things to do with the human psyche, or from a theological point of view, I'd say the human soul, are of, of great interest to me and my passion. And so in that light, I wanted to start us off all this morning with you all, willing or not, participating with me in a little psychological experiment. <laughs> you ready? <laughs> so it's probably something that you've heard of before. It's a very common uh, psychological technique. You've probably even seen it parodied on TV shows and movies, and that is the psychological technique called free association. Yeah? People have heard of it before? Even if you haven't, not to worry. All of this experiment will take place in the quiet of your own mind and heart. You don't have to share anything with anybody. You don't have to say anything out loud. In fact, it would probably be better if you didn't say anything out loud. <laughs> so, just to illustrate how it works, the idea behind free association is that you allow yourself to, uh, you kind of turn off your internal editor or censor, and I will say a word, and you will just notice whatever the first word or short phrase or even image is that comes to mind. There's no right or wrong. There's no good or bad. It just is. It's just something to notice about yourself, something to be curious about yourself. So a couple practice words to get us all warmed up. What is, again, in the quiet of your own mind, <laughs> what is the first thing that comes to mind when I say blue? So, no right or wrong, it just is. There's just something that came to mind. You might go, wow, that was kind of silly or strange, or what does that have to do with blue? No worries, it just is. It's just something that, that popped out of your mind. Second practice word. What comes to mind when I say the word tree? So just notice it. There's no right, no wrong. It's just how your mind associates, kind of how your internal wiring works. Okay, now for the real, the real word, the real test. 
again in the quiet of your own mind, what comes to mind, what word, short phrase, image, comes to mind when I say the word God? Now, in this room, there are probably as many different words and images as there are people. But what I would invite you to do is if, when I said the word God, what I would call a churchy word came to mind, a word like glorious or holy, I'd invite you now to kind of retranslate that word into language you would use when you would talk to your friend over coffee or when you would chat with your neighbor out in the front yard. So translate any churchy words into regular language. And as you do that, kind of allow to come to mind, continue kind of associating all the thoughts and feelings and images that go with that word or phrase. So kind of flesh out your association of all the things that go with that. So again, with this many of us in the room, I'm sure there are some of us here who have associations and things that have to do with distance or closeness or loving, protecting, comforting, or scary or big or impersonal. There's no right or wrong. It's all just what it is, and it's all okay. But I would like to suggest that what we're touching on here, what we're trying, attempting to uncover is the most important thing about you as a human being. To use the words of the author A.W. Tozer, what you believe, and by believe I mean are convinced of in your heart of hearts, in the deepest part of who you are, what you believe to be true about God is the most important thing about you. The most important thing. So thank you all for participating in my experiment. You can take that thing that we just did there and kind of lift it up and set it to the side for a moment as we begin to talk about the third commandment. So first off, it's impossible to talk about the third commandment without first talking about God's name. And just to remind everybody what happened when uh, God's name kind of came on the scene, is way back when, in Exodus 3, we remember that Moses was out in the wilderness, kind of tending his sheep, minding his own business, when he saw this strange sight. And this strange sight was this bush that was burning, which really isn't strange in and of itself, but that this bush kept burning and burning and burning and wasn't consumed. So he got curious. He walked over to the bush. And before he had any choice or say in the matter, he found himself in a conversation with God, with the living God. And God said to him, Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And they had this conversation where God said, Moses, I have heard the cries and the prayers of my people suffering under slavery in Egypt, and I have decided to deliver them using you. And Moses said, mm, I don't think so. Who am I? Why would you choose me? And God said, it doesn't matter who you are, because I will be with you. And Moses said, well, all right, but what about when I go to the people? What am I supposed to say? Who am I supposed to say sent me? 
And God said, for the first time in human history, God said, tell them Yahweh sent you. Literally translated, tell them, I am who I am sent you. In Hebrew, God's name is a verb, not a noun, which is a topic for another time. God said, I am who I am sent you. Yahweh sent you. God's name is really only about 3,500 years old. Every human language has kind of what we call generic names for God. But this is the first time in recorded history that God revealed his personal name to a person and to a people. And that's the reason we know that name today. Now, to get an understanding of what a risk this is for God, to reveal this personal name, all we have to think about is all the lengths that we all go to to protect our personal information, right? What do we do? We, we get panicked if we think our social security number has gotten out there, or our credit card numbers, or, God forbid, our home phone number for the telemarketers. We go to all kinds of lengths to make things secret, classified, hidden about that personal part of ourself. Why? Because we know that once it's out there, it can be used and it can be abused. Once our personal information is out there, there are terrible things like identity theft, credit card fraud, hacking, phishing, even on sweet little old Facebook. People get into our account somehow and they post something on somebody else's wall that says, Denise wants you to click on this link. I don't want them to click on that link. They're using my identity. They're misusing my identity, misrepresenting me to other people in the world. So this is a risk for God, to risk giving his personal name to a people. There are many ways, we don't have to even look very far in scripture to see all of the ways that God's name has been used and abused. And using and abusing God's name, it seems like fairly early on in the Old Testament, the third commandment came to be interpreted it primarily in the context of taking oaths and vows and making covenants. So bear with me, I know we aren't all, that's not all on the top of our things to do today is make some oaths and vows, but you'll see how it all ties back in. The primary way we hear already in Leviticus that the third commandment has been given in Exodus and then God kind of elaborates on it in Leviticus and says, oh, by the way, do not swear falsely by my name because in doing so, you profane my name. So we have this practice, it seemed to be fairly common early on in the Hebrew people's history, of making oaths and attaching God's name. Now they know the name, Yahweh. So they're going to attach it in their vow to make the vow have more credibility, to make the vow say, I'm, I'm doing this in, in that guy's name, in that God's name, like all the other cultures around them. So in doing this, we hear about interesting practices, like in Numbers chapter 6, we hear about this idea of taking a Nazarite vow, and this is somewhat maybe similar to those of us who practice the discipline of fasting and prayer, is that for a period of time, it, it appears that people would forgo certain actions as a way of 
showing their dedication, their focus, their commitment on a specific intention they had before God. So the Nazarite vow is where you'd take, you'd say, in the Lord's name, in the name of Yahweh, I'm going to forego, and kind of mysteriously in the Nazarite vow, they would forego eating grapes and cutting their hair. Uh, unusual practice. They would forego that for a time, and then when the time of the vow was up, they would resume those things. It was a way of showing their dedication to God. This practice actually persists, because even in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 18, when the Apostle Paul is moving from Corinth to Syria, he talks about cutting his hair because the time of his vow had ended. If you ever wondered what that was about, most folks believe that he's probably ending some period of making a Nazarite vow. But as much as good intentions were linked with using God's name, we also have many, many examples of bad intentions, of oaths gone bad in the Old Testament. Just for your own homework and research on the side, if you're interested in this, I'd say check out 1 Samuel 14. We get a, an account of how King Saul made an oath in the Lord's name, and he kind of has to keep it, but it involves his son Jonathan. He gets into kind of a sticky situation. And if you're really up for some very intense R-rated Bible reading, I would recommend uh, Judges chapter 11 for the terrible story of misusing God's name in an oath that the commander of the Israelite army, Jephthah, does in relation to his daughter. The prophets, when they cry out God's word and re-proclaim uh, God's word to the nation of Israel, if they strayed away, one of the things the prophets will bring up to the people, Isaiah does it, uh, Jeremiah does it, is you all have gotten in this practice of making oaths and linking my name to it and then not fulfilling your oath. And what you do when you do that is you bring my name, my personhood, my character, my very identity in with your lack of faithfulness, your lack of commitment, your infidelity, and that actually profanes my name. It's like we link God to our sin, and we drag God's name through that mud. And so the prophets cry out against this, and God tells the people through the prophets to cease and desist. So that's what's going on kind of in the time leading up to Jesus. Now, by the time of Jesus, we have several additional things happening. First of all, the Jewish people have become so concerned about misusing God's name that they have decided that the best way to avoid misusing God's name is just not to use the name at all. So we have this idea of um, circumlocutions happening, which is a way of talking all the way around using God's name. Because if you don't use God's name, you can't abuse it, right? So even today, for those of you who have friends or family or acquaintances who are observant Jews, you will find, if you attended worship with them, sometimes even in their speech, that they will not use the name for God. We as Christians are very comfortable saying, Yahweh, Yahweh. For a Jewish person, oh, that would be offensive because they have committed themselves to not misusing the name of God by not using God's name at all. So in the synagogue and worship services, the cantor will be reading Torah, 
will come to a spot in the text where in the Hebrew it would say Yahweh, they will substitute in another word, Adonai, Hashem, and go along just as usual to avoid saying the name. Now, what's happening is even you see Jesus somewhat engaged in this practice. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, is probably the most Jewish of all the Gospels. And in contrast to the Gospel of Mark and Luke, in Matthew, Matthew being sensitive to his Jewish audience, often has Jesus saying, kingdom of heaven, rather than kingdom of God. He has Jesus himself kind of following the cultural norm of avoiding using God's name. So Jesus comes and speaks in to really all these practices, the efforts to avoid using God's name, along with this long-standing practice of making oaths in God's name. Because it appears that by the time Jesus is on the scene, there's kind of been a double trouble thing happening. Not only are people not using God's name, but they're still really wanting to make oaths and kind of add some extra credibility to it by attaching something to do with God to it. So they've gotten into this practice of swearing to be faithful, swearing to be truthful, swearing that they will commit to what it is they're promising to do, but swearing by the temple or swearing by the gold in the temple, or swearing by the throne in the temple. And Jesus comes, and in the Sermon on the Mount, and in his rant against the Pharisees in Matthew 23, tells them, all these practices you are doing, all these ways you're swearing by the gold in the temple, you're swearing by the throne in the temple, you're swearing by the carpet next to the light switch on the exit door of the temple, all of it, who do you think owns the temple? Who do you think lives in the temple? Who do you think made the gold? Who sits on the throne of heaven? God. So try as you might, you think you're avoiding this difficult situation of making oaths and using God's name, but you're not. Not using the name, but using everything around the name is the same as using the name. And so Jesus invites us to a to a higher way of following this commandment and tells us, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. That actually the way to, to um, mis, not misuse God's name is to represent God well in what we do, in what we say, in what we believe. Now, I have a question for you. What is the first thing Jesus teaches us to ask for in prayer? Just think about it. You don't have to answer me out loud. What's the very first thing Jesus teaches us to ask for in prayer? So the disciples get to hang out with Jesus for three years or so. They see him in all kinds of situations, healing, teaching, walking the streets, and most of all, they get to see him pray. They get to watch him pray, and what an experience that must have been to watch Jesus himself talk to his Father. It must have been amazing, so much so that the disciples, after seeing Jesus pray, they say to him one day, Jesus We've never seen anybody 
pray like you pray. Can you teach us how to pray that way? And so Jesus says, when you pray, pray in this way. And he gives us the words that we all could probably say in our sleep. Our Father who art in heaven, and the very first thing he teaches them to ask for, teaches them to petition God about is, hallowed be thy God's name mattered to Jesus. Hallowing God's name mattered to our Lord and Savior. So much so that it's the first thing he wants us to talk to God about. God, let your name be hallowed. God, let your name be represented well. Let your name be honored. Let your name be revered in the world, with each other, even in the quiet of our own hearts. So, as I see it, Jesus kind of suggests a, a two-pronged approach, if you will. First of all, he addresses all the abuses, as we probably should too. There are probably lots and lots of things that we should not be doing in God's name. We probably shouldn't be swearing even though I'm sure there are a lot of things that God does and will damn, we probably shouldn't be burning Qurans in our churches. We probably shouldn't be carrying picket signs that say God hates fill-in-the-blank with whatever group it is that we are now convinced that God hates. But we can also do this to each other. There's the issue of how we represent God to the world. There's the issue of how we represent God to each other. So as the family of God, we probably shouldn't be saying to each other when one of us loses a loved one, well, God took your husband. God took your wife. God forbid God took your child. God must have needed him more than you. We probably shouldn't be saying things like, well, you're struggling with unanswered prayer. I, you know, you probably just didn't pray right. You probably didn't pray with enough faith. If you really had faith, God would answer your prayer. We probably shouldn't be saying to each other, you know what God wants for you most is your health and wealth and, and prosperity. He wants you to have that big car in your garage. He wants you to have that big house. That's his number one desire for you. Some of us have been on the receiving end of these types of misrepresentations of God in our families. Some of us might identify with the story of a young woman who told me that as a young girl, her dad hit her with a belt while quoting Bible verses to her about honoring her parents. Some of us have been on the receiving end of this in all places in our churches. Some of us have had an experience like the family I know of who wanted to join a church, become members of the church, and the church said that's all well and good as long as your whole family comes up front and speaks in tongues on command because that's the only way you can be a member of our church because you have to prove you're filled with the Holy Spirit. We probably shouldn't be misrepresenting God in that way. But 
Some of us, myself included, we don't even need other people to help us misrepresent God. We've gotten good at doing it to ourselves in the conversations that we have with ourselves in our own head about who God is and what his intentions are for us. One of the places I worked along the way, um, one of my chaplaincy experiences, was in an inpatient chemical dependency unit. And one day I got a call from one of the staff there who said, come on up right away. There's a young man here. He can't stop crying. He can't eat. He can't sleep. He is racked with guilt, and he says he needs somebody to confess to. So I went up, found a private space to meet with him and talk with him, and he told me his story. And he said, you know, I, I can't eat, I can't sleep, I can't stop crying. I'm so filled with guilt over all the things I've done in my enslavement to this addiction. He said, I have betrayed every single person who would ever call me friend. I've stolen from them, I've lied to them, I've gone behind their back, I've done everything you can imagine to burn all the bridges with my friends. And it's no different in my own family. I've lied to them. I've stolen from them. I have betrayed them again and again and again, and they kept giving me their trust back, and I would betray them yet again, all in service of my addiction. And he said, but there's one thing, there's one thing I just know that God cannot forgive me for. He won't. There's no way God can forgive me for this. It's just, it's too awful. When I was living with my parents, he said, my grandma was staying with us also, and she was dying of a terribly painful type of cancer. And she was on hospice in our home. And I stole my mother, my grandmother's pain medicine. Hi. I stole her from my own grandmother to get high. And I know, I know, I know, I know God could never forgive me for that. So as we talked more, it turns out that he had come from what I would kind of call a Christianity light background. He called himself a Christian. He'd been in and out of church occasionally, but never really read the Bible. So I said to him, have you ever heard the story, it's usually called, it's a story Jesus told, it's usually called the story of the prodigal son. Sometimes it's a story about a father and two sons. He said, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I said, well, this is a story that Jesus told about this father, and this father had two sons, and the younger of the two sons came to the father and said, Father, I want nothing more than to get as far away from you as I can. Give me my inheritance now. I want all the stuff, all the money I would get when you were dead, which in effect is as good as saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. And he took it all, all his inheritance. And he got out of Dodge, the next city over, and he began living life high on the hog. Wild parties, fun, food, women, the works. And he had lots of friends and lots of fun 
until the money ran out. The money ran out, the friends disappeared, he's got nothing left, he gets a job shoveling the, the you-know-what in pig stalls. While his own stomach is grumbling as he's giving the pigs their slop, he gets this idea. And he says, you know, here I am, suffering, I'm starving here, and the slaves in my father's house are better off than I am. I think I'm going to go home, I'm going to make my way back home and see if my father will let me come back as a slave. So he starts on his way, tosses that shovel aside, starts on his way down the dusty roads back toward his home. And he walks, and he walks, and he walks, and as he walks, he's composing a speech in his mind. He's got to come up with a good one. He's got this speech going in his mind about, okay, when I see him, Dad, I am so sorry. First of all, I am sorry that I, I even asked for my inheritance while you were alive. That was wrong. And that's not only it. Let's see. I'm, I'm sorry that I took the money and I spent it all. I'm sorry. Oh, I can't believe. That's so wrong. And not only that, I took the money, I spent it all, and I spent it on awful, awful, stupid things. And so he's walking, and he's practicing his speech, and he's walking, and he's practicing his speech, and he comes to that fork in the road where he knows when he makes this next turn, down at the end of that dusty road, he's going to see his house. His heart's beating a little faster, and he's getting ready to turn that corner, and he does. He turns the corner, and he heads, looks down the street, sees his house down at the end of the road, and sees... Something really strange he never expected to see. He sees his father standing out in front of the house. And at this point, I stopped the story, and I looked at the young man, because knowing he'd never heard the story before, I said, what do you think's going to happen next? And his eyes got big. He's looking at me. He says, oh, I know what's going to happen next. That dad is going to be pissed. And I said, the strange thing is, is as he turned his eyes to look down that road and see his house and was so surprised to see his father, he didn't see this. Arms crossed, wrinkled brow, shaking head. And he didn't see this. Finger pointing, I told you so. What the young man saw was this, arms of his father open wide, open wide. And not only that, the father in the meantime has sighted the son way down the road and starts to run and is running and running and running with all he has, with arms open wide ready to embrace that son. And when they meet, I'm sure it nearly knocks the wind out of the poor guy. The father wraps his arms around the son and says, son, I thought you were dead, but you're alive. And he's weeping with joy, and the son is saying, oh my gosh, wait, I've got to say my speech. I've got to say my speech. But father, don't you know I've sinned? But father, don't. can't even get the words out. Can't even get the words out. Because his father is so filled with joy that he's already on to party planning. 
He's got the ring on the guy's finger. He's got the fanciest jacket in the house. And he's saying, you know what? We are going to have the biggest barbecue you ever done seen because I thought you were dead. And now you're alive. You see, this young man was carrying around all on his own a misrepresentation of who God is. He had a view of God that God has certain things he can forgive, and then there's a limit. It goes about that far. You cross that line. Sorry, no more forgiveness for you. Some of us are carrying around misrepresentations of God. Some of us have a picture of God of kind of that absent watchmaker. You know, he wound up the universe so many millions of years ago and set down the universe and then just kind of walked away. God's more of an it than a personal being. God's not really involved. God's more like Star Wars and the Force. Just this thing out there making balancing good and evil. And Some of us have a picture of God as the big killjoy in the sky. You can bet if it's fun and if everybody else is doing it, it's a big no-no. If it's fun, it's forbidden. God wouldn't want you to have fun. Some of us are carrying around a view of God, of the abusive parent in the sky. You know, he's pretty unpredictable. You never really know quite when he's going to be in a good mood, when he's going to be in a bad mood, and watch out for the bad moods because, ooh, he has a temper. Some of us have a view of God as kind of the distant, cold judge. He's behind his judge's bench. He's kind of keeping a tally. Hmm, that was okay, but hmm, not so much on that one. He's thinking about all the laws, all the do's and don'ts, and he's sizing everybody up, seeing how obedient you are or are not. Some of us have a view of God as the kid, big kid in the sky with the magnifying glass, right? And we're the ants. We have come through so much suffering and so much pain that we're starting to wonder if maybe God isn't behind it. Maybe God's the one who wants us to have this pain who wants us to suffer in this way. Some of us have a view of God as the big vending machine in the sky, and we get really frustrated with God from time to time because we are putting in the right coins, and the treat's not coming out. What's up with that? Like this young man, we all carry around, myself included, all the beautiful and wonderful images about God, but all of us also have. We can't live in this world without having little bits and pieces of those misrepresentations of God. So in response to all of that, Jesus calls us, Jesus invites us, Jesus welcomes us into this life of hallowing God's name, of honoring God's name, of revering God's name, 
of representing God's identity and character and being rightly to the world, to each other, but most of all in here, to us, to ourselves, in how we talk about God, to ourselves, how we think about God when things go well and when they don't go so well. Which is why, take that package out that we set aside at the beginning of our time together here about all the free associations, all the things you thought of when I said the word God. Take that package out and look at it. That's why this is the most important thing about you. What you believe and are convinced of in your heart of hearts, in the depth of your being, what you believe is true about God is the most important thing about you. It's the lens through which everything that happens to you is filtered. And if that lens is foggy, if that lens is filled with pictures of God that do not match who God is, all your experiences will be shaded, colored, warped, twisted by that misrepresentation. So one way of looking at this thing we call the Christian life, this thing we call being students, lifelong students of Jesus, is that it's a lifelong practice. None of us will get there, this side of heaven, of relearning, recorrecting, being healed over and over again from all those ways we misrepresent God to ourselves. One way of looking at the gospel, one way of looking at the incarnation of Jesus coming in the flesh to live and die and be raised as one of us is that Jesus came to set us straight about God. Jesus himself is the best representation of God's name. Jesus himself is the best representation of all that is true and right about God's nature and character and desires and intentions for us. So as we continue our worship together in offering, in song, as we come to the table, I invite you to listen to those promptings of God's Holy Spirit saying, here's where I want to help you be free. Take a look at this. Let me correct, let me straighten out this part of who it is you think I am. Because Jesus wants to set you free, and me free, and all of us free for the glory of his name. Amen.